I, I want to just share some reflection about what it means or what it is that we're actually receiving when we receive the Buddhist teaching and then open it up to a theme that's relevant for our practice today. I sat with one of my primary teachers a few weeks ago in California, uh, Sokni Rinpoche, who actually coincidentally came right here right after the retreat at Spirit Rock and was teaching here at Gaia House about the week after. And some of the people here actually sat with him that retreat. But I sat with Sokni and he's one of my primary teachers who I've been sitting with for about the last maybe eight or nine years. And he's in the Tibetan tradition. He's a Tibetan Lama. And I've been able to sit with him as well as his father in Nepal, Tuku Ugen Rinpoche, who uh, is a Dzogchen master, a realized master, who passed away about five years ago. And sitting with Sokni, uh, of course I received very wonderful teachings from him, but it stirred a reflection for me around lineage and around what it really means to receive the Buddhist teachings because I, I was very struck by the fact that Sokni was born into a Buddhist family. He was born into a family where his father was a realized master, and his mother was also quite a realized being. And he had two brothers who were also uh, uh, Rinpoche's and Dzogchen teachers, masters. Dzogchen is a is a mystical, um, kind of the higher mystical expression of the Tibetan Buddhist teaching, Vajrayana. And so his brothers, three bro- there's three of them, the two brothers also became Dzogchen masters. So in, within this one family, which from the time he was born, he was exposed to and influenced by and practicing within this tradition, this a particular Tibetan tradition and lineage for his whole life. He's now only 38 years old, but he is completely uh, grounded and um, it's a fairly high realization within this tradition. But it's a very specific tradition. It's a Tibetan Vajrayana tradition. It's not one that's not necessarily my lineage. It's not where I began from or what I've been exposed to. But he was very clear and very direct, and his system was very specific in that tradition, in that lineage. And what it made me reflect on is my own lineage and how it's so different than Sokni's. Even though he's considered a Buddhist teacher, I'm considered a Buddhist teacher, but in some ways we're worlds apart in our exposures and our influences and even in terms of our lineage. I began with a Burmese uh, style of practice with uh, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Hornfield in the late 70s. And the tradition, we could say the lineage, this particular lineage, came out of Mahasi Saidao in Burma. It was a very different kind of practice which focuses on uh, concentration, deep, deep levels of concentration, progressive insight, and using noting, noting in the practice, which we mentioned this morning, making 
mental notes about moment-to-moment experience. Very different emphasis, very different lineage, different body of teachings in some way. And for the first six years of my practice, I believed that that was Buddhism. And that was all there was. Burmese style, of Mahasisa style uh, practice. And I started to feel in myself some limitation of that particular practice and also had, began to have other influences. I went to India in the late 90s and was exposed to an Indian uh, guru, Punjaji, uh, from the Hindu tradition. And he became one of my teachers and became very strongly influenced by his teachings and being in his presence and the experiences that happened around him from a whole different angle. So then I had the Burmese style of practice. I had the Hindu-Indian style of influence. Also had um, influences from the Thai forest tradition, which is a whole other kind of angle of Buddhism. Uh, Primarily, uh, the master was Ajahn Chah, uh, Jack Kornfield's teacher who brought in this particular kind of influence, which is much more open and loose and relaxed. It's more emphasis on being quite natural in in yourself, not so much emphasis on developing certain states of mind in meditation practice. And so this came in as well. So I was influenced by the Burmese style, then the Thai forest, then the um, Hindu, Indian style of practice. Um, Tibetan influences of Dzogchen from a whole different culture, a whole different aspect. And then in the last year and a half, a whole other kind of influence came in from a teacher named um, Hamid, A.H. Almas, who's been teaching about 25 or 30 years in, uh, in the west coast of America and synthesizing a very different kind of uh, practice, use, drawing on a lot of psychological traditions and Freud, Jungian, and yet very well based in uh, true nature, realizing and understanding true nature, called the Diamond Heart or Ridwan work, which is now somewhat international. And so now this exposure is coming in. And so I was reflecting on Sokni and how Sokni was just one-pointed from the time he was born, born into a family, a Buddhist family, which very, very supportive and compassionate so that he could realize, have, one, have the highest realization for his life. And then reflecting on my <laughs> background and where I was born and, and the environment I was born into, which was a, a American, uh, middle-class, mid, Midwestern, uh, dysfunctional family, um, where there were lots of difficulties, lots of psychological traumas and dysfunctions, and then finding my way, having to find my way out of that, finding my t- the tang- how to untangle out of that, and not, not finding the Dharma, not finding uh, the, the meditation path until my, my mid-20s or late-20s. Very different influence. And then because my uh, exposure to the teachings began in the 70s, already the um, walls around the different traditions that had been so um, secure over the last 
hundreds of years, thousands of years, where where there were all people were only exposed to one religion or one tradition, uh, depending on what country you lived in or what kind of uh, uh, community you were exposed to. There was very little outside influences uh, in terms of your religious or your spiritual uh, um, influences. And so here in the 70s and in the 80s, we're starting to have all these different influences available to us, all these different practices, all these different traditions, with the invasion of China in Tibet and with the uh, Tibetans having to take refuge outside of their country. It really opened up the availability of many of the Tibetan teachings and the Vajrayana teachings. And then that's coming to the West and to America. And so what we're getting now, the exposure that, that many of us have as Western, is a very different flavor in a way. It's a very different influence than the one that maybe a, a Buddhist would have received 50 years ago or any time before 50 years ago. <coughs> so now there's many influences. And I'm sure that many people here in this room have other influences. You know, whether they're from the yogi tradition or from the shamanism or more of the, some of the feminine traditions, you know, that start to influence the way that we uh, practice and the way that we understand. So, so what is it that we are practicing? You know, what is, our, uh, what are, do we call ourselves Buddhists or are we Buddhist practitioners and what aspect of that is Buddhist and what aspect isn't, it, isn't Buddhist? And, and it's very interesting now in this 21st century, you know, this culturation of Buddhism in the West and the shape that it's taking. A whole other influence for me is that I'm a woman, a Western woman. And 30 years ago or less, there weren't very many women teachers. There weren't very many women, women voices or women influences in the spiritual tradition. And so now that more women are, are, are practicing and speaking, there's a whole different flavor, a whole different uh, expression that's happening that I think is really important and really necessary for, for us to get a sense of the whole, the whole picture here. So all these different influences that we, we can say, well, what is my lineage? What is my lineage? What is my tradition? What am I bringing forth here? So here on this retreat, as you can see, there are many, many different influences. And sometimes we might think, well, if I just understood, just understood what the Buddha taught, or if I could just get the sort of the understanding of the Buddhist philosophy, then I'll get it right. But I'm not sure. I think that all these other um, traditions that are available to us, all these other practices that are available to us, are really helpful. And I think that each one of us, in a way, have to find our own resonance. What really resonates? What resonates for us? What supports us? What helps us? to be more awake, what helps us to feel more free, to feel more liberated in our life, and to really start to sense into that, to feel that inner truth, that inner uh, guidance that directs us towards that which is going to bring 
the, the realization, the liberation in our life. There's one aspect, there's one, hmm, whatever we want to call it, one factor, one theme, that I think from all of my exposure over the years, it seems that all these traditions are really pointing to the same thing. Even though in their form and their expression they appear quite different and sometimes quite divergent, even like Burmese style of practice and uh, Tibetan style of practice or Thai forest style, they're very, very different in their form and their expression. And yet they, I believe that they are all pointing to the same thing which is what makes it actually all possible, <laughs> makes the practices uh, come together, particularly for me and the lineages come together, which is the pointing towards um, and the, the, the expression that we can realize our true nature, that we can realize who we truly are. And all of these different ways and these different practices give support for that realization, that realization of waking up, the realization of finding out who we really are, who I really am, who you really are. And when we talk about true nature, it could sound like a fancy, sort of mystical, far-reaching <laughs> kind of experience, like true nature, where's that? Or I don't have true nature, maybe somebody else has true nature, like what Catherine was talking about last night, like somebody else's seat. You know, I think they've got true nature, but not on this seat, you know. So true nature, when we talk about it that way, or we talk about nature of mind, realizing the nature of our mind, it all sounds somewhat fancy, or it could. And yet what I think that it's pointing to, what, the, what a, maybe a more simpler expression of that is, is waking up to awareness itself. Waking up to pure awareness or pure consciousness. And when we think about it that way, maybe it's not so far away from our everyday experience, our ordinary experience. Because it's, it's pointing to, it's talking about Consciousness, being conscious, being conscious human beings, which we really are. Conscious means that we are, we are here, we're, we're awake, we're conscious of where we are, of what's happening, of, 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 of what I'm feeling and what's, what's going on in the room. Conscious. And I think that most of you are probably conscious right now. And so, in the teachings and in the reflections and the contemplations, we want to understand more fully what does it mean to be conscious? What does it mean to be aware? So that we can know this experience or this way of being, to be a conscious, awake, aware human being, so that we can know this really well. And we can know, well, if, if true nature, if realizing true nature is what all the traditions are pointing to, if realizing true nature is realization, then why aren't we all realized right now? Why aren't, if we're all conscious, if we're all aware, why, why aren't we all realized right now? 
there has to be a little bit more to it, it seems. It seems. Because that's what we tell ourselves. Well, then, if that's all it is, then is this realization? Well, in fact, it is. But we don't believe it. (laughs) We don't believe it. And that's the trouble. What is it that we're believing? What is it that we are taking to be the true reality? What is the, where are we placing our beliefs and our understanding? And this is the very difficulty, this is the very problem, is that we listen a little bit too carefully to our conceptual mind, to our analytical, rational mind. And the habit of the human being, or the, I should say the predicament of the human being, is to be so identified with the conceptual mind, with the thinking mind, and all the, the whole belief structure or the, the construction that's built up around that, that we lose sight of what's right here. We lose sight of our true nature or our true being, our beingness that is right here. Last night I was talking about the tendency to bend out, the bending out, that we're bending out to other things. We bend out to people, we bend out to situations, we bend out to uh, uh, things that we think are going to make us happy or bring us security. Or we bend out in a way to our conceptual mind. Ah, our thinking mind knows the answer to everything. That must be the way things are. And it's this bending out, which we might also call the grasping or the clinging quality of mind, that is the problem. That is how we get lost. That is how we lose our way. Because we don't really know what to pay attention to. We're paying attention, you know, we're conscious, but we're not paying attention to the right thing. We're paying attention to the things that we think are going to make the difference, that are going to bring our happiness, that are going to uh, shift and uh, transform our inner life, but they're the wrong things. So in our practice, in our practice, in the, in, in the, in all, I think most of the traditions, most of the practices that are available, are helping us to identify that tendency of mind, that tendency of mind which has the fancy word of identification. Identification. We'll, we'll use this word a lot. You know, how we get identified or the identification that happens with our conceptual mind, with the beliefs, the ideas, the stories, the Um, the past, the present, the future, and how that becomes the construct for our reality. That identification becomes like, it's another way of talking about it, it's like glue. It's like the glue in the mind. It's It's what sticks. It's what sticks the 
attention or the awareness to the object, to the thoughts or, or to the person or to the situation or the thing or whatever that is that we're sticking to. You know, that's the, um, the identification of the stickiness of mind. One, one teacher called it Velcro mind. You know, it's just like that, that tendency of mind is just like Velcro. And you know, if you've played around with Velcro, you know that sometimes it's really hard to pull it apart. You know, sometimes you have to use a lot of strength to pull those two pieces of Velcro apart because they're really stuck together. That's the same thing that happens for us. We take these things, our thoughts and, and, and the, the, the people and situations and uh, possessions to be some kind of reflection about who we are. That's who I am. What my mind tells me, what my thoughts tell me, the way that I feel, the, the, the condition that I am, that's who I am. And that we call the ego structure, or the structure of self, how I know myself to be. And for the most part, most people, particularly people who are not really reflecting back and questioning or inquiring into this assumption, walk around with this very solid ego structure. So we become very objectified in the world. And, and I can remember back, I remember back in my 20s to when I was very objectified. I was quite sure that I knew who I was. And I didn't think that there was going to be any chance that I was ever going to be any different in my life. And so when, I, when, I, when somebody suggested to me that I had to practice acceptance, what I thought acceptance meant was accepting who I am because this is who I am and it's never going to change so you better get used to it and this is who you're going to be for the rest of your life and if you don't like it you're going to be in trouble. A very objectified view. That's all I knew. And so then everybody else and all the people around me and everything that happened was in relationship to this object of how I knew myself to be. And it was a very kind of fixed uh, uh, way, a very mechanical, kind of mechanistic way of moving in the world. Like you really bump into things and get hurt, you know, like people. And, you know, because it was all it's very, very solid in that way. And then as I came into the Dharma and started hearing more deeply the teachings, the teachings of selflessness, the teachings of radical acceptance, and the teachings of compassion, teachings of impermanence, really starting to understand, well, maybe things aren't quite as solid as I imagine them to be. Maybe I'm not as solid as I imagined myself to be. And through the meditation and through the practices, that kind of solid view began to break up to the point where maybe I started to sense, well, maybe I don't know who I am very well. Maybe I can't believe so well the things that I'm telling myself. And even in that, as that questioning started to happen, I started feeling a little looser, a little freer even though, I have to say, there was certainly a little bit more anxiety and maybe a little bit more fear. It's like, well, I'm not that? Well, if I'm not that, then who am I? And 
what's going to happen if I don't really know who I am? And those kinds of thoughts that can start happening as things, as, as the view starts to break up, as there starts to become a little bit more doubt or questioning about the solidified, objectified view. So this, this kind of breaking apart of this identification seems to be one of the steps along the way of all these spiritual traditions, these spiritual lineages, when we start breaking apart these solidified views. One of the views, one of the ways that we become identified that really needs attention and really needs to be seen into is something that's already been coming up today. Some people were talking about it in the group. And this is the uh, pattern of judging, the pattern of the judging mind or the critical mind, the negative mind, that, that voice or the, the words in the mind that arise that can be really hurtful towards ourselves, can be very undermining towards ourselves. And what happens when we don't have some way to reflect upon those thoughts or upon that way the conceptual mind is forming or manifesting is that we believe them. We believe those judgments. And we believe them to such an extent that we believe that that voice, that aspect of ourselves is acting in our benefit. <laughs> and that if I listen really well to what the judge or the critic is saying to me, that I'll be better off. So when when people a number of people were feeling quite tired today, and a lot of sluggishness or sleepiness. And some people reported how difficult that was to be so tired and be so sleepy today. And as I inquired in that a little bit more, what I discovered was that the reason that it was difficult is because of the judge, because of what the critical mind was saying about being sleepy. You know, this is a waste of time. Why did you even come to the retreat? You know, if this is all you're going to be doing, this is just, you know, uh, you're just a, a complete failure in this. Why even do it? Why even begin? Um, why don't you just leave now? <laughs> you know, you've been meditating for two years or three years, and look at you, you're just mush, you're just a slob. No? And we could go on, right? Each one of you have your own versions, you have your own storyline of how that judge can manifest. And amazingly enough, we really don't see it a lot of the time. We just feel more and more victimized. We feel more and more beat down. We feel more saddened by the way that our mind is treating us. Now it's like almost like we have these two aspects to ourselves. You know, the one that's critical and negative and hurtful, and then the one that really gets hurt. You know, the one that's really getting beaten up and wounded. And so we can feel both of that. We can, when we tune into it and start to pay attention, we can get a sense of both the one that is terrorizing and the one who is being terrorized. And if we can start to bring some awareness to this, some 
attention to this, we start to see, in a way, this, this struggle, this conflict playing out in our own mind. We say, wait a minute, <laughs> how is this happening? What's actu- what actually needs to take place in order for this to continue, in order for this to be uh, solidified and reinforced in my mind? And the answer to that is lack of attention, (laughs) lack of awareness, lack of consciousness about what's actually going on. And the antidote is awareness. The antidote is clear seeing. And and the Buddha talked about uh, uh, mindfulness practice and the practice that we're doing here as an antidote, a medicine, a medicine for our illness, a medicine for our, um, the symptoms of our disease. And so we are given this medicine or this, this uh, antidote that is going to help us heal, that is going to help us uh, feel better, help us come to a place of wholeness and healing within ourselves. And so we take the antidote we take the antidote of awareness and we shed awareness or light, shedding light, shedding awareness on our mind, on our body, on our emotions, on our predicament. We say, what's going on here? How did I get into this? What, what's happening here? And we start to look at it from another location from a location of awareness itself. Awareness that is not caught up in the struggle. Awareness which is, mm, we could say detached, but I don't want to use that word because, although I already did, but I think it's a little bit of a dangerous word because it's another way that we can kind of split off from ourselves and we don't want to do that. But an awareness that is, might say, spacious enough open enough, receptive enough, that it can actually hold the dynamic of the, of the mind-body experience. It can actually reflect back on it and say, aha, I see, I see. Because awareness, the, 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 the function of awareness or the, the characteristic of awareness is to see or to know. Sometimes we call it knowing. Awareness, another word for awareness is knowingness. But it's not a knowing with the conceptual mind. It's not a knowing with the mechanism that we usually know from, which is our intellectual, analytical, rational, and uh, conceptual mind. That's just mind, thinking mind. We call it ordinary thinking mind. But when we talk about awareness, Awareness is bigger than that, we might say. It's bigger than that. The awareness can actually hold the thinking mind. Awareness can embrace the thinking mind. Awareness can know the thinking mind without being engaged with the thinking mind. The practice of mindfulness is based on on awareness, on consciousness itself. This quality, this ability to know itself, 
to know thinking mind, to know the feeling life, to know the body, to know the sights and the sounds and the tastes and the smells and the touch of the senses of the sensual life. It knows all that. And we can practice. We can begin to practice this knowing quality without having to pull in the conceptual mind all the time, which is sometimes called the intellectual mind. We are deeply conditioned, particularly as Western intellectual types, we are conditioned to use our conceptual mind to figure out things, to understand things, to know things, to navigate, to find our way. And it's only until we come upon some kind of spiritual path or spiritual realization or spiritual insight that shifts us out, throws us back, so to speak, into that which is aware, that which is, that which is conscious, that which is not conceptual. When I'm walking outside and enjoying the beauty of these gardens and the incredible June is June is such a beautiful month here in England, and all the flowers that are fully in bloom. Of course, this weather is spectacular, and the sun is shining, and the birds are singing, and and everything. Catherine and I were saying everything seems possible, you know, in this kind of weather. It's like anything's possible. The, the heart is uplifted, and and there's a sense of really wanting to be alive for the most part. And yet that can be experienced fully and directly without having to think about it very much. You know, I can walk through the gardens and, and smell, see the beauty, beautiful colors of the flowers and smell the flowers and listen to the birds, and I don't have to think about it. In fact, if I start thinking about it, it's possible that it may start separating me from the experience itself. That I start to become more engaged in my thoughts and the reality that I'm starting to construct within my own mind than the true reality that's right here, right in front of me, unblemished, undisturbed, perfect in its expression. And the more that I'm able to be there in that silent presence for the expression of life in that moment, I am that. In a way, there isn't so much me here and the nature there or me here experiencing the birds and the flowers and the grass. It's like it's happening. Awareness is so big, so expansive, so vast that it holds all of it. And maybe thoughts arise, maybe some concepts arise, some um, expression of delight to the mind, oh, what a beautiful day, or whatever kind of a natural expression of, uh, of some comment. That's, that's, that's all part of the expression of the moment. But awareness holds that too that doesn't even have to create any division or separation. Really right there. And so our, in our practice, we're wanting to 
get a sense of what is this like, what is this experience like, when we can be fully present, and when our conceptual mind isn't taking over, (laughs) isn't overwhelming the experience, we might say, is the perfect way to say it, really, because that's how it feels. We feel overwhelmed by our mind. And usually what the mind is carrying or the mind is delivering is the past. All that's happened in the past. And all the difficulties or the challenges or the pains or the sufferings, whatever, or are uh, of the past or how we project into the future to try to recreate the past so that things get better or more satisfactory or some kind of fantasy that gives us some sense of, 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 of that feeling better or some kind of satisfaction that starts to arise when we do that. But generally we're caught up in that imaginary world, in that world that isn't actually so real at one level. At another level it's absolutely real. And so we honor that, but we also want to sense into something else that is also real, that we lose touch with. A reality that is here and now, without the past, without the future, without even the idea of the present, that gives us relief from the burden of the past, from the projections of the future the possibility of true relief where we can just put it down, let it go, and we can be here for what this moment is bringing, which somehow has a, has a different texture to it when it's not just conceptual mind, when we're, we're more engaged in the wholeness of, the, of this moment and all the ways that that's manifesting. And sometimes it's not going to be just sensual experience, or even delightful sensual experience. Sometimes the moment may bring uh, a lot of deep emotion, or some uh, emotional pain, or some physical pain, or some difficulty that we would rather not be with. But as we open to and practice how to be here more fully, more wholly, more aware, then we can even be with ourselves in a new way, in a fresh way. Where the emotional life, the, the feeling life, the body, the body, the physical life, even the, 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 the thinking mind, all start to take on a different texture, a different vibration, because we're right there. We're right there. We're not split off. We're not fragmented. We're not lost. We're not dissociated. We're not distracted. We're here. We're here. And so what we'll be exploring is why we don't want to be here. What happens that we don't want to be here? What happens that we want to sacrifice this 
vast, boundless, aware, conscious being that we are and make ourselves small and keep ourselves limited, keep ourselves identified with a construct that is not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth. How can we find out what the whole truth is? And that's what I really want to explore here so that we can get some insight and understanding of what creates that division, what creates that block from the fullness of our being that we are, which is right here and now, not over there, or back there, or out there, but here now. We just shift that, shift our perspective just a little bit. This is a, a passage from Shantideva, Uh, from A Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life, uh, translated by Stephen Batchelor. It's from the Tibetan tradition. And um, it helps bring this into some some concepts for us. Those who wish to guard their practice should very attentively guard their minds. For those who do not guard their minds will be unable to guard their practice. In this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries of the deepest hell which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my mind. But if the elephant of my mind is firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness, All fears will cease to exist and all virtues will come into my hand. If the elephant of my mind, and we know what he's talking about, (laughs) the elephant of my mind is firmly bound on all sides, all sides, by the rope of mindfulness. And mindfulness is the awareness Mindfulness is the practice, it's what we're calling on, the attention of present moment awareness. Mindfulness practice. If it's bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness, all fears will cease to exist and all virtues will come into my hand. So it's not that you cease to exist, which is sometimes what people think of this emptiness or this selfless practice. It's not that you cease to exist. Fear and confusion cease to exist and all virtues of heart and being come forth in the expression of yourself. The virtues of patience and loving kindness and compassion and generosity and morality and truthfulness all these beautiful qualities of heart 
is what we are, are what we are, when they are unblocked by our, the constructs of our mind, all fears and confusion cease to exist. And so the moments when you are walking around and you're feeling open and relaxed and at ease, and your tummy isn't all bound up in anxiety and constriction. There no, there's no fear. There's no fear. And in that moment, if there's awareness, if there's some consciousness around the recognition of that experience, that's an expression of that freedom. It's an expression of the absence of that identification. Yet, we have to be a little bit careful that we then don't become identified with that experience of feeling so relaxed and so at ease and, and so happy within ourselves because then that becomes another construct. So we watch that, mindfulness. We pay attention to that to be sure that we're not creating another attachment. So we keep mindfulness on guard. Mindfulness on guard for the ways that we create some identification and attachment with experiences and the things around us that we think are going to make us more whole and complete. And we begin to trust and let go of these things, and the things may be the inner things as well as the outer things. We trust and let go and start to sense into what's there. What's there as I start to let go? Can I trust it? Can I let go? Can I let go and find out who I truly am? Because the spiritual teachings and all the spiritual traditions, all the spiritual lineages say that you are not who you think you are and that things aren't necessarily the way that you perceive them to be. We want to shed some doubt on our constructs and our perceptions to see if there's something else that may reveal itself. Let's just sit quietly for a minute or two.